Hello and welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast. I'm your host, Raj Gupta from Nashville, Tennessee and uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And we have a fantastic episode coming up for you today. With me as always is my co-host, Eric Schwank from uh, Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. How are you, Eric? Raj, I'm great. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Always sunny this time, yeah. It's uh, you guys are finally thawing out over there after the deep polar vortex that came through your way. We survived. Good. Yeah, good to see the sun again. I'm sure. So before we get to our other uh, co-hosts and our guests, I want to make a couple of uh, announcements uh, about uh, upcoming events and important deadlines that you guys should know about. First off, is we do have our ASRA spring meeting coming up. It's the uh, big annual spring meeting for regional anesthesia and acute pain. That's going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada, between April 11th and the 13th. A couple of deadlines that are coming up soon that you should be aware of. First off is we have early bird registration that's at a discounted rate. That deadline is February 17th. So depending on when you're listening to this, that's going to come up really soon. Um, the other deadline on February 17th is a call for videos. We're asking people to send in videos for how you do it, how you do different kinds of blocks uh, for fascial plane blocks, and how you use point-of-care ultrasound in your practice. So we want to see those videos. Be funny, be entertaining, or just be informative. We want to see your videos, and it's going to be a fantastic interactive session at the meeting where people are going to see those videos and kind of learn from each other. A couple other things is the workshops for the spring meeting are filling up very quickly. So make sure you... Uh, go when you register is to look at the workshops and find some openings. We're trying to make sure everybody has an opportunity to get what they want, but these are filling up fast. I think half the workshop spots are already full. So um, go over there and check out all the registration opportunities. Same thing with the hotel. The hotel has uh, conference rates at a reduced rate available at Caesars Palace. We want to make sure you get access to that. So go over there and register for hotel rooms early. Uh, we don't want you to run out of that opportunity to stay at Caesars right there where the meeting is. Uh, we have a special thing going on with um, the conference this year, which is a revamped Ask the Experts interactive sessions. These are going to be more town hall style. We're going to get a, our faculty away from the podium, away from the slide deck, and really engaging with the audience. So when you're browsing through the program, look at the Ask the Experts interactive sessions. I think it's going to be a great opportunity for you to get your questions answered and really engage with some of the most well-known faculty in this field. The other thing that's special that we have that we just confirmed is that our Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams, is definitely coming to the meeting. He's going to be our keynote speaker on the first day on Thursday. So um, he's going to be talking about the opioid epidemic and what he's been doing from his office to help curb that. So make sure you plan on coming to that and seeing Dr. Adams speak. He's a wonderful speaker. I've seen him speak before. It's very entertaining, very engaging. And lastly, we're going to be doing a lot of effort on social media. So if you just go to one thing, go to Twitter and follow the hashtag AzraSpring19, and you'll see all our activity on that Twitter page. Um, lots of social media team members that are going to be putting out messages and different comments and questions and information leading up to the meeting as well. Okay, so that does it for our announcements. Let me introduce one of our new co-hosts, 
Um, Sandy Christensen is going to be joining us more often on the uh, Azure podcast. She is uh, an assistant professor in anesthesiology and perioperative medicine. She's also the medical director for quality improvement and patient safety in the Comprehensive Pain Center at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. How are you, Sandy? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing well, Raj. Thanks for having me. And uh, our other co-host, Gary Schwartz, who's the director of the Acute Pain Management uh, service at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, and is a partner at AABP uh, in New York. He's going to be joining us in just a few minutes. He's running late. You know, we all have families, and he's dropping off his kids, uh, finishing up basketball practice, so he's going to join us in a few minutes. And then our guest for today is uh, one of our friends and colleagues from Florida, Andres Messer. Andres is the chief of acute pain medicine and the Assistant Chief of Service for Anesthesiology at the Bruce Carter VA Hospital in Miami. How are you, Andres? Hey, guys. Good evening. Hey, great. And um, we're going to be talking about an article that Andres um, is the lead author on, but it's a joint effort between the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and the European Society of Regional Anesthesia. It uh, just came out in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine uh, this month, and it's titled The Impact of Perioperative Pain Management on Cancer Recurrence. It's a special article combined between these two societies, and it's been a work in progress for several years. Uh, Andres, why don't you kind of introduce us to the topic in general, and then we'll get into some of the details here shortly. Okay. Thanks, Raj. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. Um, so the initial idea of the project was to look at all the disparate studies out there and try to determine what the impact is of perioperative pain management on cancer recurrence. I think one of the um, earlier studies that really triggered our interest in this topic was the one by Exadactylus back in 2006. So about three years ago, maybe four, we approached the ASRA board and the ASRA board about whether we could put together a, a task force to kind of look at the data and see if we could come up with any evidence-based um, recommendations for the society. Um, so after some debate, uh, they gave us the green light uh, we put together a 14-man team, man and woman team, and um, we started to look at all the data using keywords. We went through various databases and PubMed, uh, Medline, Embase, the usual. And um, our initial uh, query came up with over 400 different sources, of which um, 197 of them were were finally selected in terms of uh, appropriateness. Um, and in particular, we wanted to look at cancer recurrence. Um, and that became really a limiting factor because a lot of the studies look at other aspects of, of cancer and cancer pain, but not long-term recurrence. So our next task was to try to figure out, well, how do we go about um, analyzing all these studies in terms of their quality? And um, there are various methods out there. And uh, the one that we felt was the most appropriate is a system called the GRADE um, study ranking, and GRADE stands for grading of recommendations, assessments, development, and evaluation. And the nice thing about this uh, system is that it um, evaluates the quality of the evidence and the strength of the recommendation. What I mean by that is that you can have weak evidence and yet still have a strong recommendation in the absence of other studies. So it, it was a nice way to look at clinical data, clinical studies. We had to obviously make adjustments for 
non-clinical or animal-based or cell-based uh, studies. And that's really where we started. So everyone kind of uh, divided into groups and uh, we started looking at all that data and, and really looking at the quality of the studies. Over the course of the next several years, um, we would meet up, we would share our results in terms of the, the grading of each uh, study, depending on the topic. So we looked at things like opiates, local anesthetics, uh, nerve blocks, et cetera. And we tried to put together something that um, we felt could, could be kind of like a, a roadmap, if nothing else, in terms of what it is that we as anesthesiologists and pain specialists can do for patients who are undergoing primary cancer surgery um, in terms of their pain control and its impact on eventual cancer recurrence. And uh, well, the end result is what you see in, in the latest issue now, of uh, regional anesthesia and pain medicine. And it's really the first step. Uh, we really have a long way to go in terms of making definitive recommendations. Um, but we were able to at least identify those areas where we need to continue to work. And what we know up until now, in terms of what decisions we can make, Andres, this is Eric. Um, thanks a lot for kind of uh, giving everybody a, a good summary and uh, idea of uh, what led you guys to do this. I I'm just going to dive right in and, and uh, talk about one of the, uh, I guess, ask you about one of the areas that's always uh, been an interest of mine, and that's the recommendation uh, behind epidural analgesia slash anesthesia, which overall seems to be significantly decreasing as surgeons get more minimally invasive or just uh, kind of head in directions towards truncal blocks or, or whatever the case is or, or multimodal analgesia. Can you say a quick word about um, the evidence for epidurals in, uh, immune, in having a positive effect on immune function and, and what you guys found? Sure. Um, epidurals were really some of the first um, pain management modalities that were looked at in terms of cancer recurrence. Probably the, the biggest trial is the MASTER trial out of Australia. Um, and th there is some conflicting results out there, and uh, we, we're discovering that it has to do um, with a couple things. The first is not all pain interventions are going to have the same effect on cancer recurrence um, depending on the cancer type. So cancer type prostate versus lung versus breast, might have different uh, impacts in terms of perioperative pain management and occurrence. That's one thing to take into consideration. A lot of the studies we looked at, uh, whether it was epidurals or parivertebrals or blocks, even intravenous local anesthetics, um, unfortunately had a lot of confounders. I mean, um, for example, the exposure to volatile anesthetics was rarely uh, controlled for. Um, the incidence of transfusions uh, was not controlled for. And so these were limiting factors in terms of the uh, results that were reported. And we know those to be uh, a negative impact on the immune response of the human body during the perioperative period and the uh, surgical stress response. So what do we know? <laughs> we know that the epidural, in some cases, uh, will help reduce recurrence. In others, it won't. Depends, again, on the, on the cancer type. Um, we know that we need more prospective clinical data, not so much retrospective, which is what we have now. Um, so time will tell. Um, there's over nine studies coming out um, in the next year or so 
and those are all prospective clinical trials, and uh, we're hopeful to have a clearer picture at that time. Thanks, Andres. I, um, I have a question. What do you think is the most surprising thing you found? I think the one of the more surprising things we found was uh, in terms of intravenous local anesthetics um, and their use as preoperative uh, pain management modalities, especially in the OR and postoperatively in a monitored setting. Um, we didn't expect to see such robust um, animal and cell uh, data. Um, we have very little prospective human data, unfortunately. But when it comes to the animal and, and, and laboratory data, it's, it's very interesting. In fact, there's a very recent article last year in hepatocellular carcinoma models in mice showing that lidocaine um, not only um, has nearly the same impact as cisplatin in that particular model in terms of its chemotherapeutic effects on tumor growth and uh, tumor size, um, it's synergistic with cisplatin. Um, so probably one of the one of the best things we found in terms of our recommendations was that although it was, it was limited in terms of the data we had, it was very good data, the one we had for intravenous lidocaine and, and its um, beneficial effects on cancer recurrence. So that was, that was definitely promising. Interesting. Andre, this is a great study, and I think all of us, thank you for publishing it, because we all like to make a difference in patients' lives, especially if we can make a difference on cancer recurrence. If there's any takeaway you could have of... Uh, maybe what you use in your practice, whether you give aspirin to all your colorectal patients or epidural versus lidocaine infusion, do you give ketamine, even though there's no, the, the human data is limited, if you can shed some light on how you practice in your institution? Sure. Um, and, and this is a topic that's close to my heart because uh, pretty much half of my family has had cancer in one shape or another. And most recently I have a cousin who's 30 years old who was uh, diagnosed just last year with lymphoma. And um, despite my best efforts to convince the oncologist to use intravenous lidocaine during chemotherapy, he would not have any, <laughs> he didn't want to participate in that particular uh, treatment modality. So it was a little frustrating. But um, what I can tell you is that, you know, the, the, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. And I think in a patient population, um, a cancer patient population where a, a diagnosis is often interpreted as a death uh, warrant. I mean, th these patients are, are truly, truly, truly afraid, and they look to us for answers and they look for us uh, to us for comfort. I think we have, to some degree, uh, an ethical responsibility to have a conversation with them about what we know, what we don't know, what the risks are of the different treatment modalities in terms of pain management that we have and, and what their potential impact on cancer occurrence could be. And all things being equal, if, if, if the risk is equivalent in terms of intraoperative use of say propofol versus a volatile anesthetic, um, why not allow them to decide if they want to use Tiva, for example, for their general anesthetic, as opposed to a volatile, because there is a chance that it might uh, potentially reduce their, their risk of cancer recurrence. And that's just an, one example. I think we owe it to those patients, that conversation. But we need to make it clear to them that we don't have all the answers. There are more questions than answers. But again, in something like intravenous lidocaine, where the risks are 
potentially outweighed by the huge benefits down the road. It's, it's something that I'm thinking that I am going to tell my patient. Um, and hopefully we'll have better answers in the coming years. I think that's really interesting. And one of the things I think about too is how this can apply even past the perioperative state into kind of the chronic um, cancer pain patients that we see. And um, in the article, I found it very interesting that morphine seems to have an adverse effect on cancer cells because as you know, with uh, intrathecal pumps, that's one of our first agents that we try. So I just think about some of the implications of this on um, managing patients even after the OR. Any thoughts on that, Andres? Right, and that, that kind of goes along with the question is, is it more important the drug that we use or treating pain as completely as possible? Is it, mm -hmm. is it, is it the chemical substance or is it that perioperative pain response that is also immunosuppressive. And I don't have the answer. Um, I, we just need more data for that. But obviously, treating pain and treating pain effectively is irrefutably important to maintaining our, our, our body's endogenous immune response to primary cancer surgery, where the surgeon is going to remove tumor, but at the same time, shower the body with microemboli and that amount of minimum residual disease is what's going to determine down the road whether cancer occurs or not. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's... Um, so, I yeah, thought, yeah. Go ahead, Sarah. It's interesting. Sandy? No, no, that's, that's, um, that's really insightful. So I had a, a question. So I have this article, um, and, and I encourage everyone to read it because... Um, it was very educational for me too, not just what to do in practice, but just learning about the science of uh, cancer and, and, and inflammation in particular. And the question I had was regarding that inflammation. And one of the things that, um, I struggle with frequently is understanding this nuance difference. And it may just be the specific inflammatory markers that we're talking about. I asked Stuart Grant this question. He came and gave grand rounds to us last week, and he was presenting on a similar topic. And I asked him this question, is inflammation good or bad for cancer? Because in some places in the article, we talk about inflammation is the source of the problem and cancer cells thrive in an inflammatory state and the immune system is uh, more problematic or not as functional when there's inflammation going on. And so you want anti-inflammatory things. And then there's certain components of the inflammatory process that, of course, are the things that are destroying cancer cells. So have we... Have we been using a blunt instrument to try to deal with inflammation and that the solution is targeting which specific inflammatory markers we're interested in? Or is it, uh, am I missing something? I don't think uh, you're, you're missing anything. I think we have an incomplete understanding of the preoperative inflammatory response. I think that's what it comes down to. Um, if, if you kind of look at the surgical stress response over time, in, in the first day, um, after surgery, the, the pro-inflammatory cytokines um, that are dispersed throughout the body um, are accompanied by stress hormone, which those two together are immunosuppressive. But then in the subsequent 48 hours, you have these anti-inflammatory cytokines like IL-6, 10, TGF-beta that are released. And those are the ones that help trigger our body's own immune response in terms of Finding the minimum residual disease, those 
tumor microemboli and processing them, meaning those natural killer cells and macrophages are activated. But what ends up happening is that we add to this mix now our general anesthetic with volatiles, our uh, opiates to treat pain, surgery and pain itself. All of those seem to outweigh um, those pro-anti-inflammatory cytokines. And so we end up with this overall inflammatory picture that is immunosuppressive. So at the end of the day, what we need to try to figure out is which are the cytokines that we want to preserve? Which are the ones that are we are trying to reduce? And I think it all comes down to treating pain as effectively as possible. And down the road, we'll know which are the best agents with which to do so for example, IV lidocaine, which in addition to treating pain, have definite chemotherapeutic activity on certain tumor cells. So that's where it's going to be very interesting if we can if we can get to that level. Andre, thanks a lot. This is Eric again. I, I had picking up uh, off something you said earlier. It's, tell me if you agree with this or not. But it seemed it seemed that you were maybe uh, suggesting that at worst case you. It's probably no worse to use some of the, uh, the the medications and techniques that are mentioned here. For example, epidurals or local anesthetics through IVs, multimodal approach, which pretty much all acute pain uh, experts are agreeing is beneficial for patients for at least the acute pain period. If 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 all you get out of it is improved acute pain and fewer side effects, and maybe doesn't have much benefit on cancer recurrence, isn't it still a good thing? And then there's that possibility of of having an effect on cancer recurrence that could just be a, a bonus if it turns out that the research can demonstrate that. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly it. I think in, in the in the absence of, of good prospect of randomized human clinical trials, but with relatively robust animal and lab data, where risk is equal or, or less than the alternative, I agree. Why not give at least patients the option? Let them choose. If, if, they, if, if you need to take the weight off your shoulders, let the patient make the choice because they're looking to you for answers. And I feel like we, we tend to practice with the, the safest and most comfortable technique for ourselves, you know, turning on the gas uh, or that's what we feel anyway. And maybe we're, making, we're doing a disservice to our, our, our patients by doing that. And we need to also, um, we, we need to tell this story to the surgeons and the oncologists. We need to make them part of the of the care team, the perioperative care team, because they have impact also on, on this eventual um, degree of cancer occurrence. Um, and I think any surgeon worth his salt, if 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 you take five minutes to explain to them what we know, they will give you those ten minutes to place the block. I think. I hope. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm sure they're going to ask for a block for their own family members when, when time comes. So I think it's a team approach and I think it's education. And um, I'm seeing, at least in my institution, a very supportive uh, response from surgeons. Great, that's, again, that's encouraging. I don't, I don't know if this is out of the scope of the article. I didn't see it in there, but any recommendations for our listeners on maybe some cancer patients that are presenting on opiates or pain medications before any advice for our colleagues for the intraoperative and postoperative management. I don't know if you saw that in any of your research. Um, no, unfortunately. Um, what I would say just 
based on, on my personal experience, those of my colleagues, is if we can minimize the exposure to opioids, that's always a positive. So definitely trying to go down that multimodal route, using more blocks, using more intravenous um, analgesics uh, like dexamethamidine, IV lidocaine, propofol. Um, all those things are going to work in your favor when it comes to cancer recurrence. Uh, that's, that's the picture we're getting. And one more question to follow up. I don't know if you've seen this or it might be the case of future trials or randomized control trials. Do you see anything that might lead to benefit of maybe like a propofol dexamethamidine combination with IV lidocaine to hit different receptors? Exactly. That's, that's really, I think, the ultimate goal is to come up with, a, you know, for lack of a better term, a cocktail of intravenous um, opioid and volatile anesthetic sparing uh, anesthetics that treat pain provide anesthesia. And the question becomes, well, we've addressed the intraoperative period. What do we do with the postoperative period? Because we can't keep people on these infusions forever. And that answer I don't have. I don't know. Um, I think there might be a benefit to keeping patients maybe for 48 hours post-op in a monitored setting on those infusions, but we don't have those answers. We don't know how long those infusions need to remain. And, and remember, everything we're talking about is for a primary cancer that has not metastasized yet because we're looking at cancer recurrence. We have no idea what the answer is to patients who already have metastasis. So it's a, it's, a, it's a specific population with a finite window of opportunity, but an important one for anesthesiologists, I, I believe, because we can play a very critical role. I think these are exciting times and the research is really exciting. Are you aware of anything coming down the pipeline? Um, when you were doing this study that you think will shed even more light? Yeah, we have a, well, we, um, uh, Donald Buggy and company has a, a very large uh, international multi-center trial that the results should be published in March, um, if everything goes well, that looked at paravertebral blocks and TIVA versus volatile anesthesia with opioid PTA um, for uh, breast cancer. So I think that's going to be a very nice prospect of randomized control trial in humans that where it's going to shed some light in a very important segment of the population. Do you have any idea how many patients? Over a thousand. Wow, that's great. Yeah, and I think it was a five to seven year follow-up period, so it should be a very robust study. Yeah, I think uh, I think that was a five-year follow-up, which is what everybody's been eagerly awaiting because they had done some of the uh, some of the other work on pervertebrals and breasts. Um, surgery, but I don't think the TIVA was part of the equation at that time. Correct. I mean, these guys have done a very nice job in their methodology to address the confounder and really, you know, try to take out of the picture the, the fact that you're going to have disparate um, opiates, disparate exposures to volatile anesthetics. Um, it was very frustrating to see on the cover of anesthesiology the other day, that article on um, TIVA versus general anesthesia for breast cancer surgery and, and cancer occurrence. And when you look at the data, the TIVA group had a 300% greater exposure to uh, opiates than the volatile <laughs> anesthetic group. So right. they came to the conclusion that it didn't make any difference, but they never even discussed that fact. Why there was, was no chance. There was no chance from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Mm. And so, you know, um, we, we as anesthesiologists are, are reticent to change, I think. I think we're, we're scared of the unknown sometimes. You know, I mean, all of us as acute pain specialists, I mean, we get a lot, a lot of grief from our surgeons sometimes, and we get a lot of grief from our colleagues who don't practice acute pain. But I think change is coming, and I think, I hope, I hope everyone gets on board. 
So, Andres, before I uh, give you one last question here, I, I do want to make a comment about something, sort of a pushback while still agreeing with you. Um, I, one of the comments you said is that when the risks of the two options are the same, um, why wouldn't we pick the option where there's the potential? And I think the fundamental difficulty that a lot of people have is that in their mind, the risks aren't the same. Um, there's a couple of different risks with doing things like Tiva or lidocaine infusions. Uh, one of them is the medical risks, which were there's a growing body of evidence that these are safe medications to give. But then there's a logistical risk. And the logistical risk, as a coming from a place where we've had to fight the battles to get things like lidocaine infusions approved on the floor or ketamine infusions, have those available in dose aliquots that are actually appropriate instead of having big fat vials that you have to have a lot of waste with propofol in uh, infusions that have, um, uh, you know, TIVAs where IVs infiltrate, um, and that creates a problem with the risk of awareness. So, unfortunately, the risks aren't exactly equivalent, and I think that's one of the difficulties. So, I'll lead to my final question, and you can comment on that as well, which is um, the sort of classic, if you had a family member having a cancer-type surgery, and I know you've elucidated that each cancer is a little different, each um, type of uh, even tumor grade may cause different options. But if you had to pick your perfect anesthetic for a uh, family member, who would that, uh, what, what would that anesthetic look like? I, I think it, it's, a, it's a fair question. Um, and that's why I think sometimes I understand why people can't make that, that, that call, especially, you know, given the litigation that we have in, in, in our society right now. Um, if it was for a family member, um, I think I would definitely do a, a preoperative analgesic um, with with uh, uh, a preoperatively placed uh, nerve block, be it neuraxial or peripheral. It doesn't doesn't matter. Um, I would also premedicate them with an NSAID, um, and then I would use uh, an intravenous infusion of lidocaine, propofol, and maybe even dexmedetomidine, avoiding a volatile anesthetic. And in the post-operative period, I would try to continue um, those infusions for at least 48 hours. If, if that family member were to go for chemotherapy on uh, subsequent uh, dates, I would ask that the oncologist then use intravenous lidocaine along with the chemotherapy infusion um, during each session. Um, I don't know what I would do for breakthrough pain, I'll be honest with you, because um, we don't have a lot of good options. Uh, short of opiates. And uh, there, I think, you know, once the NSAIDs stop to work, or maybe even beta blockers, that there's some data now that beta blockers can help, um, you might have to bite the bullet. And, and, and you can't have the patient suffer, right? But uh, so two, I think two yeah. things you didn't mention one was ketamine, and the second was, um, and this may have just been the way I asked the question, was. And a more concerted effort before someone has surgery to reduce their baseline opioids if they're on it. Um, Cancer is a little tricky. We don't always have that opportunity, though. That's right. In terms of, of ketamine, um, ketamine has shown some contradictory results depending on the cancer type. Um, for example, in breast cancer surgery, ketamine infusion has been shown to increase recurrence. So that depends on the type of cancer you're going to treat. Um, in vitro, we did see some suppression of pro-inflammatory cytokines and uh, uh, 
preservation of our endogenous immune system. But um, really, ketamine has been found to be more beneficial in uh, lung cancer cases uh, when compared to uh, using opioids for the treatment of pain. But it's not, you know, uh, it's, it's not as robust as IV lidocaine, for example. Yeah, I think that what we're seeing in, in this um, article is a fantastic summary of our current state of information is we do have an effect. We don't know what that effect is. We don't know exactly how to make that effect. But there is something that in the interop perioperative period that we can do that could potentially affect cancer recurrence, which is kind of inspiring in a way that uh, that our short time with a patient may impact them for months to years down the road. And I think that we should engage in that conversation more. And you are, you guys have done a great job of challenging people with areas of future research. So I encourage all our listeners out there to go in there and find those areas of future research. And, you know, maybe you're the next publication that goes into the next review article that comes along. Um, I do want to thank Andres for uh, joining us. This was uh we had quite the scheduling snafu for making this podcast happen, but he's been diligent and persistent with us. And so thank you, Andres, for joining us um, on this podcast. Um, and uh, I want to welcome uh, Sandy and Gary as new co-hosts that we're going to be putting regularly. Gary's been on here before. Sandy's joining us for the first time, but we're going to have them as part of our regular crew of co-hosts um, in future episodes. And last, of course, Go check out azure.com. We've got a fantastic spring meeting. We're going to be talking about some of these very topics at that meeting. You'll get to go meet Andres if you want to go say hi to him and go talk to him in person if you have a question that we didn't ask him. So um, he'll be at the meeting. All uh, I don't know if Sandy's coming, but she goes to the fall meeting usually, but I think the rest of us will be there. Um, and uh, come say hi to all of us too. So thank you all for uh, the uh, excellent show today, and uh, we can't wait to talk to you guys again next time. Okay. Thanks, Raj. Take care, all. Good job, guys. Have a good night. Thanks. Have a good evening. <laughs>